This is Conquering Columbus. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike, here. And on today's show, we're talking with Tom Daly, who was a part of the team that started up Discover Card, if you can imagine that. And uh, he's also been involved with quite a few different startups and companies in the e-payment and processing space throughout his career. Early on in the show, we talk about some of the things that Tom has seen throughout that journey that have separated successful entrepreneurs from unsuccessful ones. Founders tend to be very passionate about whatever it is they created, which of course is a positive thing, but sometimes when you get into the third or fourth year of a startup company, the market tells you which direction you need to go, and it may require some adjustments to your original concept. And that sometimes is very difficult for founders who have strong ideas about what it is that they created. Be proud about what you created, but be willing to listen to others, be willing to step back even if it's difficult and let some other folks have input into how things work and realize that scaling is an entirely different exercise than starting. Later, we get into Tom's opinions on cryptocurrencies and some of the challenges governments face with the growth of crypto. Governments measure things like prosperity, everything from GDP to a lot of other key measures. And it's also one of the primary enforcement mechanisms, whether it comes to taxes or criminal enforcement, everything revolves around financial transactions. And so along comes cryptocurrencies, which theoretically no longer require banks or governments for money to move. And that's very, very scary to governments for the reasons that I outlined. And and they suddenly lose visibility. They lose the ability to, to measure key things that they've always wanted to measure. Money can cross borders a lot more seamlessly than any other way. We wrap up the show with the advantages and disadvantages of being involved in a smaller business versus some of the larger companies that Tom has been a part of throughout his journey. You're certainly far more nimble because you're a smaller organization. Decisions can have a ripple effect on the organization. A smaller business is much more focused on how am I going to pay next week's payroll. The individual decisions are much more impactful because you're a smaller business. You have a much greater sense of, I got to get this right (laughs) or bad things could happen. Like I might not have my business anymore. And so the smaller the organization, I actually think in many ways, the harder it is. As always, we hope you enjoy this episode and learn a lot because I know Josh and I did talking with Tom. That's it for me. Let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike, here. I got Josh in the booth with me today. Josh, what's going on? Not too much, dude. How are you? You bundled up like it's cold outside. It's like 59 degrees. I was freezing in my house. The problem with this weather at this time of the year is when it gets hot, then it gets cold. And then, you know, if you have the heat on or the AC on, it's like nobody's created an invention to solve that yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Welcome to Ohio, where the weather decides what it wants to do on a daily basis. But that's probably enough about the weather. Anything else going on in your life? No, dude, there's nothing exciting going on in my life. (laughs) I bought my dog a vest today that I could put on the side of it, do not pet, because she's not very good at getting petted. (laughs) She's also not very good at wearing vests. So (laughs) she's kind of- Sounds like a problem. (laughs) Sounds like a real dilemma, but uh, that's enough about Ezra. We'll go ahead and introduce our guest for today. So joining us on the show today is Tom Daly, and Tom provides independent, expert, strategic, and practical advice to merchants, payment processors, investors, law firms, and other organizations. He's a recognized- trusted expert in the card and payment space. As a senior executive at Discover, he managed the multi-billion dollar merchant business unit, including a team of over 2,000 across 28 facilities. And more recently, as CEO at International E-Commerce Payments Processor 2 Checkout, Tom led more than $70 million in funding rounds and a quadrupling of the company's market valuation. In addition to consulting, today Tom serves as an expert witness, consultant, and in litigation support roles for payment-related matters. 
He's also an active investor, board member, and philanthropist across a variety of companies, and he serves as the chair emeritus of the board of trustees of the Center of Science and Industry, or COSI, as many of you know it. He's also the founder and chair of the Tommy Daly Foundation, Incorporated. Tom and his partner, Sung Jin, are also currently managing five restaurants, including four Zoop fast casual restaurants, as well as a new concept, Tasty Dog, in central Ohio through their company, Tasty Main LLC. We're excited to have Tom on to talk about everything he has going on today, learn more about his career in e-commerce and payments management, as well as talk about Zoop and Tasty Dog. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Tom. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We've got a lot of t- to talk about today, but one of the first places we always like to start is just get a little background on yourself, your story, kind of how you got to Columbus as far back as have you always lived here. So I was born in Chillicothe, not far from Columbus, and uh, went to the Ohio State University and thought I wanted to do a career in either law or political science. And so my degree is in political science, but along the way, I got a job at a company called Sears, which at that time was the number one retailer and number one credit grantor in the world. We're talking in the early 1980s. Rest in and, peace to Sears. Uh, yes, well, I, I like peace. how we have to explain what Sears was for sad, all the young people out there. commentary, right? Right. And while I was still in school, Sears decided that they wanted to expand the use of their proprietary credit card outside the walls of Sears. And that became the Discover Card. The first Discover Card office uh, was actually here in Columbus. I was the 19th employee in the company when, before it even had a name. And so my, I, I kind of had a, a parallel path with uh, being involved in, in Discover as a startup while I was finishing up college. I went on to have a 23-year career at Discover Card. It was a fantastic career. I uh, ended up in uh, second in command at the company and uh, left there in 2006 because the company was doing some fundamental changes to its business model and that was going to change my part of the business and I wanted to stay in that field. So I left Discover in 2006 and then I became CEO of a company called Two Checkout, which a lot of people haven't heard of, but it's actually the the box that appears on 10,000 e-commerce websites all over the world, specializing in cross-border payments and multi-currency payments. We sold that company. Actually, we sold it a couple of times, uh, iterations, and then went into the consulting roles that you've talked about and still do a fair amount of payments and e-commerce consulting, especially in the litigation space, expert witness and forensic analysis and those kinds of things. And then for the last four years, dipped our toes into something completely different, which is the restaurant space. We are the area developers for Zoop for Central and Southern Ohio. A Zoop, for those who may not know, is fast, casual soup, salad, and sandwich uh, restaurant. We have multiple locations around Columbus. And then more recently, uh, just last year, we launched another concept, uh, Tasty Dog, which is, uh, I'll call it high-end hot dogs. We opened our first physical store downtown near State and High Street, right off Capitol Square. And that's our prototype store. We're try- we're spending about a year working through all of the uh various iterations and making sure we fine-tuned the process and the, and the menu and so forth. And then we have intention of expanding that brand as well. So Discover Card and Two Checkout alone, I mean, I only know Two Checkout because I've been in a lot of integration conversations recently, but I, and I don't know the in-depth competitive dynamics of that landscape, but I got to imagine it's close to the market leader in terms of payment processing on the back end of applications, right? I mean, Especially when they're when you're talking about either cross-border or multi-currency transactions, that's really where we specialize in two checkout, where the buyer and seller may be in two different countries, and there may be two currencies involved. Uh, two checkout really excelled at at the the technology platform that handled all of that backend currency conversion, and then as you might imagine, it's a, a extremely payment. The payments industry is a very highly regulated industry in any event, but when you involve things crossing borders, money crossing borders, 
and currency changes and so forth becomes infinitely more complex. And so to check out really kind of demystified all of that and, and, and made it so that its clients didn't have to worry about that. So especially for international sellers, to check out a you know, pretty robust platform. So take me back to the beginning of Discover Card, which I didn't even know came out of Sears. And to think that there's even an early, like I would have- Imagining uh, Discover as a startup is yeah, very Yeah, that's, that's what I was me. about to say. Like, I'm not trying to say it in a negative way from an age perspective, but like I thought Discover Card's been around for 80 years. Like I just assumed it was one of these JP Morgan Chase way back in the day. Maybe I'm ignorant on how long credit cards have even been around. But so to be the 19th employee and go through that growth, like I don't even know what questions to ask you, but I, I imagine it had been an amazing experience. And then you grew- your career tremendously inside of that. And you never went back to like business school or anything, did you? You just kind of- I, I didn't and because um, really things were going so rapidly and and quite frankly, so well at Discover and and uh, uh, that so that just never occurred. And so what were the learnings along the way? I mean, sure, there's tremendous amount, but are there milestones that stick out over that 19 years, I think you said, career? Well, you know, it, in the early years, it was definitely a David and Goliath kind of struggle. You know, the the conventional wisdom was that nobody could unseat MasterCard and Visa as the major credit cards that are out there. And we, we proved that wrong. We ended up creating the largest proprietary credit card network in the world. So we did that by sort of not listening to the pundits and uh, just focusing on where we could differentiate ourselves, both in terms of how credit cards could be different for consumers, how the experience could be different, but also how it could be different for the merchants. I mean, the time Discover was started, every credit card on the planet charged an annual fee, usually a large annual fee. And, you know, Discover Card, we launched a card that not only did not charge an annual fee, but actually paid you rewards back. Now, of course, these days, that's very, very common. Every credit card pays you rewards. But in those days, it was not uh, common at all. And the idea that a credit card not only would not charge you a fee, but would, would pay you back was, you know, was something very new in the industry. Same thing for merchants, you know, Discover prided itself on being a card that also viewed merchants as a very important customer, not just a means for acquiring credit card transactions, and also looked at pricing and other things that were more attractive to merchants. So it was one merchant at a time, one customer at a time. But over those 23 years, it grew into, like I say, the largest proprietary credit card network. And so it was very exciting. I had 19 jobs in those 23 years. So uh, it never got boring. To have the opportunity as a as a young guy to you know the levels of responsibility I held now you know that as I reflect back on it I'm sort of in awe that you know somebody at my age would be given those responsibilities but I appreciate that I had the opportunity to to do those things but you know the opportunity to grow with a company and have that much breadth of experience across so many dimensions of a company. It was something very special and and I very much appreciate it to this day. So how many employees? By your 23rd year, this is 06, I think you said. How many employees in the company at that time? I think it was about 15,000 at that point. <laughs> From 19 to 15,000. Yeah. Second in command, over 15,000 So you still knew everybody. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every day. Right, right. What I'm curious about is what were, because we could probably talk about this forever, so I don't want to spend too much time on the Discover topic because we got a lot more to get to, but what were Visa and MasterCard saying about Discover because I'd imagine that they probably thought, ah, there's no way they're going to be able to give away all this stuff and make money. I mean, that's got to be what they were saying. And it's just funny how that evolved. But I'm curious, like, what were they were they concerned or were they just like writing you guys off? I think in the very early days, uh, we were kind of a gnat that they were just kind of, you know, shooing away, not taking us very seriously. You know, the, the fundamental difference uh, at that time was that MasterCard and Visa were both 
consortiums. They were they were associations of member banks that collectively put together this MasterCard and Visa networks so that you could exchange transactions, but they were fundamentally a consortium of banks. And so there's some inherent inefficiencies in that model. We, on the other hand, were a privately held company and could make decisions and be much more nimble about how we we, we could uh, implement those. We didn't have to wait for the next meeting of you know, uh, all the large banks uh, in the country, many of which had competing interests, and to move forward. So I think we were nimble. We were a little bit stealthy. We, I think, were courageous in some ways that uh, maybe we didn't have any right to be, but we we were, and we changed the industry. They did eventually go public, right? Isn't Discover public Discover now? did eventually go public, yes, in 2006, I believe. And so when you started that early, maybe this is a personal question, tell me to back off. Did they give you equity when your 19th employee in Discover card? Yes, there was equity involved. And of course, you know, as I went up into senior, more senior roles, there was more of my, you know, a larger portion of your compensation ends up being equity and restricted shares and options and so forth. And so you get done in 06 and you say, hey, the strategic direction of the company is not in alignment with where I see myself moving forward. And then you fall in alignment with this two checkout situation. Yes. How big is two checkout at that point? I believe at that point we had about uh, um, probably 100 employees. We were processing around $250 million in transactions annually at that at that time. You're along the ride with them for how many years? Well, I was along the ride through multiple, so I'm, I'm still sort of on the ride, but I'm a quiet person in the back seat right now. So I was the CEO for the first iteration of the company through 2012, when we actually initially sold the majority of the company to a group of private equity investors and then remained as CEO into that iteration of two checkout. And then the company was effectively sold again to another group of majority investors. That was the point at which I stepped out of the company, but I, I still hold equity in the company, but I have no uh, management role. So what I want to know now is when you got done with Discover, you probably didn't have to keep going. You probably could have done whatever you wanted. What made you want to continue? What made you want to keep pushing, keep working, keep kind of, taking that track? Well, it's a good question. So I would, uh, first of all, I was, I've been very blessed in my life and very fortunate. And I came from a modest background and so could have probably kicked my feet up at that point. First of all, I was, I was pretty young still at that point. I was in my forties and, you know, from an energy perspective, I, I, I just uh, wasn't ready to do that. And secondly, I just have too much passion. I am a little bit of a workaholic and I have too much passion and too much, you know, I lay it, lay awake at night with my my mind going a thousand miles an hour about everything you can imagine. And so I, I just can't imagine a scenario where I'm sort of relaxing on a beach somewhere that doesn't work for me. I have to be learning and creating and, and being involved in, and doing something. And so it, it was never really a thought in my mind that I wouldn't go off and do something else. What does change is it gives you an opportunity to have maybe a little bit more flexibility and a little bit more discretion around what you can do because it's no longer around the paycheck every week, at least not to the same degree. And it's more around what is it I want to do that's, you know, fulfilling for me or, or uh, you know, helps the world or whatever the case may be. And when did you decide that your time at two checkout was, was coming to a close, at least from a, a direct management involvement? Um, you know, when you bring private equity investors into a business and every private equity investor has a different, I guess I'll call it a persona. And that can be a strategy around, you know, what their expectations are, how quickly they're trying to grow their investment and get out, and, you know, a, a lot of, a, a thousand other factors. And so I think you have to be in tune with your 
investors, at least your majority investors. And you have to know when you're not perhaps in tune with your majority investors in terms of their strategy for like an exit strategy or whatever you're trying to do. And so really we got into a situation, there was, there's no animosity here or anything like that, but we just got into a situation where I probably wasn't the right match and the right leadership style or the style of investors that we brought into the company. And I recognized that. And frankly, when I went for round two in that company, it had always been sort of an open discussion about, you know, hey, if this ever gets to a point where I'm not the right person to, to lead the company. So, so that's, that's really where it went. And I think companies, especially early stage companies, go through multiple phases. Generally, you're starting with the founder, CEO, and then, you know, three or four years in, typically another person comes in who hits that growth phase and the funding phases and so forth. And then somewhere on the other end, you end up with a mature company that probably requires a different kind of leadership. And then, as is the case with to checkout and and with a lot of companies, you kind of that whole cycle starts over again, and you scale and you start aggregating other companies and so forth. And so, there's kind of a right person for each of those stages, and it's it's fine if it's not the same person all the way along. In fact, it rarely is. And so uh, that that was fine with me. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. So out of curiosity, right, if you were going to give advice to, say, a founder, who is looking for that second stage person or is looking for someone to come in and lead their business, what should they be looking for if they've found, you know, at least some product market fit, right? They're kind of at that three to four year mark and they know, hey, we got to do something. I got to juice this thing. What would you advise them to look for? I've worked with a lot of founders. And so what you typically find with founders is, first of all, they're they're the individual that came up with the great idea, whatever the great idea was. And, you know, they've achieved some level of traction or you wouldn't be having those conversations. And uh, usually there's some level of recognition that that in order to scale a business requires an entirely different skill set than creating a business initially, especially if you're going to bring in outside money, because outside investors are going to be very, very interested in whether or not the people you have involved have done it before and, you know, what their ability is to raise money to a certain extent. There has to be some recognition of where you sort of stand in the industry as a leader and so forth. And so usually if you're going to bring in outside money, you probably also want to bring in an outside person unless you're well-versed in that kind of world. So, but the other thing is I think founders, founders tend to be very passionate about whatever it is they created, which of course is a positive thing. But sometimes when you get into the third or fourth year of a startup company, the market tells you which direction you need to go. And it may require some adjustments to your original concept and that sometimes is very difficult for founders who have strong ideas about, you know, what it is that they created and, and, and rightful pride in what they created and perhaps some resistance in doing whatever it needs to take to go forward. So my advice to founders is always, you know, be proud about what you, what you created, but be willing to listen to others, be willing to step back, even if it's difficult and let some other folks have, have uh, input into how things work and realize that what it takes to scale is different than what it takes to start. And my saying, I, I, I like to I like to say that I'm not the smartest person in the room. And I think that's good advice for founders too. Don't always assume you're the smartest person in the room. Be willing to listen to other people and, and learn from other people. And 
and realize that a scaling is an entirely different exercise than starting. I think that's really solid advice. And the thing that, that stood out to me that I haven't thought much about is like founder's bias, right? You have a bias to believe in your product and you have a bias to think that, hey, the first, the original idea we had is what got us here. Why should I change that? So I really like that that concept. I think it's really great advice. It's an interesting dynamic though. So when I think about it, I don't think I ever could fully wrap myself around it from a mentality standpoint and understand why that was until I started to go through the process. And I think I understand like, at least for me personally, there's this desire to solve this problem and get it right and watch growth. And I think that solving that original problem sometimes isn't the future problem. And so I can understand at a deeper level now why it's kind of hard to emotionally detach yourself from that and make decisions in the heat of the moment instead of what you historically are used to being yes. right. I'm curious from someone that's been so entrenched in the payment processing side and this whole new wave of currencies that are coming, and I'm sure you knew this question was coming, even though we didn't throw it, I don't think we threw it on the outline, but we probably should have. I'm just thinking about it as we're going. What do you think about with respect to what cryptocurrency is doing to this space? And do you have any strong opinions or convictions on that? Do you invest in this space? I don't directly invest in cryptocurrencies, but I'm fascinated by it because what it really is, is it's the democratization of payments. Payments for millennia now, you know, the exchange of money has been a highly regulated transaction and more so now than it ever has been. And not only by local governments, but by when you have cross-border kinds of transactions and so forth. And it's also become the primary way by which governments measure things like prosperity, like everything from GDP to a lot of other key measures. And it's also one of the primary enforcement mechanisms, whether it come to, comes to taxes or criminal enforcement, whatever the case may be, everything revolves around financial transactions. And so along comes cryptocurrencies, which theoretically no longer require banks or governments to be involved as a central bank or as a conduit for money to move. And that's very, very scary to governments for the reasons that I outlined. And, and they suddenly lose visibility into money movement and wealth, and they lose the ability to, to measure some key things that they've always wanted to measure. And so, and, and as I say, you know, money can cross borders a lot more seamlessly than, than any other way. So I expect governments to make it, to make every effort to regulate cryptocurrency every bit as strongly as they regulate any other movement of money. I don't think they'll be successful doing that, partially because the technology has too many end runs that you can go around that. And so I think right now what's going on is this sort of environment where you've got this very free and somewhat uncontrolled, unregulated uh, market of cryptocurrency. And then you have all these governments that say, you know, somehow that has to fit in our uh, existing ecosystem. And I'm not sure how it's going to turn out, but what I do know is, you know, the, the, that governments are going to find ways to, if not control, regulate and have some involvement uh, in cryptocurrencies remains, remains to be seen, you know, how that's going to work. But I think it's, it's fascinating because it, um, you know, it's cryptocurrencies are not subject to, you know, any of the market controls or, or uh, I mean, it's truly sort of a free floating, you know, market instrument and, and therefore high risk, potentially high reward. And I think that everybody's just trying to figure out how do you, you know, how, how do you put a little bit more control around that? But it's fascinating. And your perspective as you're talking through it, I think it's kind of changed my perspective to some extent, to be honest. And I, I'm thinking through the whole Russia situation and 
I don't know why it's ever been clear to me, but how powerful money is as a tool. And to think that, I, I think when I was first considering cryptocurrency and the idea of no government involvement, not that I'm like some type of bring down the man situation, but I, yes. I'm i not like a huge, uh, have government involved in everything. So it was a little bit of an enlightening situation. And now I do see the need for regulation and and what could happen if there isn't some form of regulation around that. Right, yes. right. If everybody used cryptocurrencies and no one reported their taxes, big problems, <laughs> right? Be big. sweet for me, but yeah. Yeah, eventually. <laughs> for, for, for short term, you're thinking very short term on that one. Um, but no, I mean, it is it is definitely the way you described it did also kind of hit me in a way that I was like, oh yeah, that would be, that would be a problem. That's not an easy thing to solve. And you know, I'm sure that there will be, like you said, there's no really good way to regulate it because there's always some end run. You create a digital wallet, like you could go after the, the coin bases of the world, but then people can create their own digital wallets and, right. and there's always going to be somebody out there holding the digital wallet that you don't know about. Sure. There'll be methods created though, that we can't even wrap our head around it, at least not me to this point. You know, it's like thinking back to the internet, would I have thought that someone would jump on there and uh, sell me soap that could be delivered the same day. Of course not. I would have thought, never thought anything like that. Soap's so. the one that blew your mind, huh? You were like, man, as soon as I got soap same day, that was that was it for me. Try showering without soap. It doesn't work very well. Yeah, so true. drop jumping into Zoop, <laughs> though, not to double down on the soap topic. Uh, so talk to us about how that came about and how long did you wait? I'm always really curious, too, with, with successful and highly driven people. You get done with this endeavor and you sit back and do you do you chill out for a month or two months? Do you take a year hiatus? Do you go right back to work the next day? I think it's good to take, you know, somewhere between two and six months, which is what I did to just sort of collect, recharge, think, you know, give yourself a little bit of room to relax. Being in companies where you're doing a lot of fundraising and so forth is can be pretty exhausting, certainly for compressed periods of time. So I let myself relax a little bit. And then, but I, as I said earlier, I knew I was going to get back into something. At that stage of my career, I'd been through, you know, a whole large large corporate, you know, adventure, and then an early stage leading to a larger exit adventure. And so I was open to whatever may come, but I was also in my mind, I thought, you know, for this next chapter, how about doing something that's, you know, not quite as intense, maybe doesn't involve as much time away from home, you know, those kinds of things. And, and again, I had reached a stage in life where, you know, wasn't looking necessarily for the same kind of wealth building opportunity and so forth and that had been earlier. So, so to answer your question directly, so we took a vacation on a, uh, we did the Lake Michigan circle tour. I don't know if you've ever known that, uh, done that, but you can kind of start at any point on the tour. We started in Chicago and, you know, you kind of go around the entire lake and there are all these places you can stop all around Lake Michigan, really cool places with lighthouses and wineries and those kinds of things. How long does that take? Well, you can take as long as you want. I think we took close to two weeks, but you can do it a lot faster if you want to. But if you want to enjoy it, there are plenty of activities to to keep you occupied for a couple of weeks. And it's it's, it's just beautiful country. Um, so I was toying around with the idea of, well, what are businesses that are out there that are franchise-like? In other words, somebody else has kind of, you know, created something that you can, you can join and scale, but aren't, you know, the subways of the world that have 18,000 franchisees who have very little uh, influence in the organization. And so I, I, w- I started studying f- franchise opportunities as I, as we were doing this tour. And as you might imagine, Zoop is, I was looking at them alphabetically, of course, and Zoop is at the end. <laughs> and uh, so I was somewhere around Benton Harbor, Michigan or something on the, <laughs> almost at the end of the circle. 
And uh, we love soup. We make it all the time at home and, and you know, just, just enjoy it and so forth. And Ohio is a good uh, climate for soup, you know, nine months out of the year anyway. And so we found this, you know, this, this, this uh, organization that had, you know, 60 outlets or 70 outlets, but nothing huge. Got to meet the CEO, uh, enjoyed his vision, visited a few soup locations and kind of felt, just fell in love with it. And we said, we got to, you know, we got to do this. And so, you know, the original intention was let's build one of these things. And we did, we built one out of Tuttle Crossing and let's see how that goes. And this is where my entrepreneurial passion kicked in because I, I have a saying, I tell people anything worth doing is worth overdoing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, here we are five years later with five restaurants. And so, you know, it, it, did, it ended up moving a lot faster than at least I had told myself it would move, but I guess in hindsight, I'm not all that surprised. I tend to like to scale things like that. So, so uh, we're operating, you know, we've got some zoops around Columbus today. It's fast, casual soup, salad, and sandwiches. You know, we're looking at other opportunities to move to some of the larger communities outside of Columbus. Some, you know, the Lancasters and Chillicothe's and Newark's and Delaware's kind of of the world. I think there's an opportunity there. And then we also started uh, last year our, other brand, which is Tasty Dog, gourmet hot dog concept. We opened our first store downtown, uh, our prototype store uh, last August, and we're spending the next year or so kind of fine-tuning that concept, making sure we've got things right, and then we're looking to grow that concept as well. Now, that's a proprietary concept Mm -hmm. that we invented. So, Why hot dogs? So we did a lot of research about what does the Columbus market, well, first of all, I should tell you, I lived in Chicago for 20 years. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. there's a hot dog stand on every corner in Chicago, okay. right? And so, you're, you're no ketchup on your hot dog kind of guy. And no I'm ketchup. Guessing. Well, yeah. if our customers want ketchup, I'm more right. than happy to do it. Yes. <laughs> but my Chicago friends- But well, we frown on it. Yes. So, uh, you know, I did a lot of research around the food scene in Columbus. And of course, Columbus is a very robust market for food. And although there's some great hot dog places here in Columbus, and I don't want to- take anything away from them. The, the um, market for sort of an upscale dressed hot dogs, you know, our, ours are hundred percent all beef, select beef, jumbo dogs. They're on steamed pretzel rolls. We have 26 different toppings and 12 signature dogs. And, and so we did a lot of research around sort of who was the, who was the top dog, no pun intended, <laughs> uh, hot dog purveyor in, in all the major markets around the country. And, you know, what was their business model and what did they serve and so forth. And we tried to pull kind of the best of all of those into one concept. So that's what we're trying to do. So it's not sort of the ordinary hot dog that you get at the ice cream store with some Coney sauce. I mean, our our stuff's kind of piled high with a lot of fun ingredients and we're having a lot of fun with it. It seems to be resonating with, with the public and we're doing, our sales are going up and we're doing a lot of catering. And so we're learning and scale it here when we when we feel like the time's right. Yeah, and if you're listening right now and you're thinking, that sounds pretty good, well, we got some good news for you. Tom and his team have uh, provided us with a promo code that you can use for 25% off an order of $10 or more. The code is CONQUER, C-O-N-Q-E-R. Whoop, I missed a U in there. C-O-N-Q-U-E-R. And again, that's 25% off any Tasty Dog online order, specifically of $10 or more. It's valid only at tasty-dog.com. And that is tasty-dog, spelled D-A-W-G dot com. So you guys want to try it? Go ahead, put it in an online order. Use that code CONQUER. You'll get 25% off. 
Thanks so much, Tom. Absolutely happy to do it. And uh, I'm absolutely going to try it because I do love hot dogs. Uh, do you guys do like brats and stuff too or no? So we also, in addition to hot dogs, we have Italian sausage. We have a company called Fontanini that makes very authentic, sweet Italian sausage with fennel and I and love a good sausage gradients. and peppers. And, and, uh, and we have the grilled oh, onions man. and peppers for you uh, to go on top. And then for vegetarians and vegans, we have plant-based, a plant-based option, a plant-based brat. Uh, on a gluten-free bun. Uh, so we try to have something for everybody. Hey, everybody. Mike here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. And we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is uh, really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate, and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive companies, it grows a highly adaptive workforce, and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. I always think it's cool when somebody's just strictly following, like if you, what I'm what excited about it for me, I guess I'm going to be long-winded about this is getting to a point in my career where I'm financially stable enough just to do what I have fun with. And then people would be like, just do that now. And I'm like, well, you know, I wish I could. Easy but, to say. <laughs> but, but so like you guys are following this passion and having fun with it. And I think that strategy comes so much easier when you can let the pressure fall off your shoulders. So it's exciting to sit back and see what you guys accomplished with this and what it turns into. And I tie that into, I was in Naples like six months ago or something like that. And uh, we we're going down the road and the the famous hot dog dude from Chicago, it starts with a P, I forget the name. Portillo? Portillo. Yes. So, so it's funny that like you would think, oh, hot dog. Yeah, go for it. Like you're going to make a lot of money on hot dogs. This guy's got a yacht the size <laughs> of this building yes. that's called Hot Dog. Yes. And he was sitting out in like the most beautiful home, just relaxing over this infinity pool. And I'm like, man- Hot dogs are where it's at because this guy <laughs> has made a lot of hot dog money. It's true. He's a major, major player. And so to watch you guys just grow into that and invite me on the yacht in a couple of years will be great. That's what I'm it. getting at. So. Right. Hey, if there's a yacht involved, I'll remember to invite you. Okay. Okay. There you go. There you go. So, well, I'm curious. I got one more question on okay, that. Okay. Here you go. How do you think about when you're, when you're driving Discover and to check out and you're making strategic decisions every day versus making strategic decisions in a smaller company? How do you think about strategy? Like what, what goes through your mind? Do you have theories and frameworks you follow or you just really pay attention to the market? When I stepped down from Discover to a smaller company, I have to admit, I was a bit overly confident about, well, how difficult can this be? I've run this massive you know, organization and uh, so therefore this other thing is going to be a piece of cake. Couldn't, couldn't have been more wrong because you know, in a large organization, things are kind of you know, split up and specialized and, you know, you have a lot of support from, you know, whether planning and analysis or finance or accounting or whatever the case may be, smaller business, you know, you may not have the luxury of all those resources and you may not have all the financial resources that you need. And so I, I that was a important lesson for me to learn. It sort of grounded me a little bit and I had to, to realize that, you know, uh, smaller companies have to make do with much, much less resources. And, 
And uh, so that, well, that was a very, very important lesson. And so, and then of course, when you go to an even smaller organization, like the, the restaurant thing that we're talking about now, you're certainly far more nimble. I mean, you can make a decision and implement it, you know, very, very quickly. Those decisions, because you're a small organization, they can have a ripple effect on the organization. They can take resources that could otherwise be used for something else. And, you know, a smaller business is much more focused on how am I going to pay next week's payroll, especially in the last couple of years during COVID. And, you know, how can I get a favorable lease so that I can grow? And how can I, you know, what do I do about with uh, supply chain uh, shortages and the increasing costs of goods? And how do I, you know, price a menu that's going to appeal to the public, but still cover my costs? And, and it becomes much more, first of all, it's much more granular. The individual decisions are much more impactful because you're a smaller business. And thirdly, you have a much greater sense of, I got to get this right. <laughs> Or, you know, bad things could happen, like I might not have my business anymore. And so that's the difference between maybe a larger organization. So I think there's something to learn in organizations of all size. But uh, the hard lesson to learn is the smaller the organization, I actually think in many ways, the harder it is to run. And it's certainly a different skill set than a larger organization. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. I mean, I guess when you think about strategy, it's what your allocation of resources, which is time, money, and energy. That's and you right. have much less of that in a small organization. You do. Yes, you, you, you do. And uh, so you have to think very carefully about what you're going to do with your precious resources and how you're going to allocate them. Now, from a strategy perspective, you know, again, smaller organizations are much more nimble. So you can, you know, you can perhaps afford to, you know, you don't, you don't get stuck in committee meeting rooms where you have 17 meetings uh, going over 15 iterations of a plan that then takes six months to implement and well, you know, you can do things much more quickly than that. And and uh, and I think some of being nimble like that is what, you know, helps small organizations kind of break into well-entrenched markets because like, like a Discover card, mm-hmm. um, because they're not kind of encumbered by all that stuff. Um, but on the other hand, um, uh, you, you can't just sort of loosey-goosey, <laughs> you know, go out and do whatever you want because that's going to get you in trouble too. You have to know what your competitors are, are doing and you have to know what your market looks like. And, you know, you can't just sort of do everything at, at your whim either. You have to have some discipline around your strategy, even for a small business. My last question, your favorite credit card right now. <laughs> My favorite credit card right now. Well, I'm very, very sentimental about the Discover card. And so. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So, Adds up. so Discover, you know, is, 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 I'll put it this way. Discover occupies the largest percentage of my heart of uh, any of the other credit cards that are out there. But credit cards have gotten very, very creative around reward structures and uh, those kinds of things. And there's there's a whole interesting conversation that for another time about how they can fund those rewards. Because basically you're, you're paying the merchant, the merchant's paying the credit card issuer, they're funding rewards, but the rewards are really getting funded by the merchant and you're ultimately paying for it in the price of the goods you sell. So you're probably not getting a reward at all. But yeah, that's that's just yeah, but it makes me feel good. Hold on, you just feel good about it. But you feel like you feel yeah. good about it, right? You feel good about it, and so uh, there are certainly credit cards out there that you know, uh, especially if you're doing a, willing to do a balance transfer or short short time transfer or something, you can, you know, you can very much play a game, jump in between credit cards. But you know, I love I love Discover because I, I help build Discover. If I'm just strictly looking at rewards, there are some other cards out there that are probably a little bit richer, but uh, that's not my primary focus right now. 
I get 2% cash back and I'm okay with it. You want to know why? Because if I do more, then all of a sudden I'm paying for it in the products and yep. I'm just like... It always is back on the consumer. Like anything comes <laughs> always comes back to the consumer, right? I mean... Yeah, if you're, ultimately you're funding, I mean, you know, you, you, you're purchasing the product. The product has to include all of the costs of the mm-hmm. goods sold. Uh, not just the physical product, but, you and know, all of the overhead. And there. part of that overhead is things like credit card fees. And so ultimately... In some in some direct or indirect way, you're you are paying for your own rewards. Well, now that you all feel good about your rewards program, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think that's a good place to kind of head towards some of our last questions of the show. So, Tom, one of the first places we like to start is: Do you have any advice for our listeners? Oftentimes, right when we're talking about our listeners, ninety more than ninety percent in Columbus area, anywhere from you know young professionals all the way up to people who just love listening in and hearing about people in Columbus, but for the most part, interested in business entrepreneurship that type of thing. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, one of the things I, um, said earlier is, is don't presume you're the smartest person in the room. A little bit of humility goes a long way. I think you, you can get a lot of great insights, especially from people who are close to the process. It's easy for me to sit back and think about, you know, kind of theoretically how to do something, but if I'm not talking to the person who does it every day or serves the customer every day, I'm not really getting the full, the full picture. So, uh, that would be that would be one major thing I would say. The other one is, I think you have to focus mostly on today, what's going on today. And that's not to say you don't have to have an eye towards the future or your goals or where you want to go, but you're not going to get there if you're not delivering great products and services right now. And so I try to not worry too much about what's going to happen in the future. I try to think about how I want things to go so that I can kind of manifest that to happen. But try to worry about uh, what I'm doing today. And I try not to take all the business endeavors I'm involved in. I try to take them in bite-sized chunks because sometimes if you think about the enormity of a complex, whatever, organization or plan or whatever, it, it can sometimes seem very daunting and and hard to execute. And you really just have to take bites uh, out of it and focus on individual pieces at a time versus trying to do everything at once or execute everything at once because you're probably going to get overwhelmed. So, and then finally just, you know, persevere and don't give up. And if you fall down, get back up and, you know, wipe off your knees and, and, and keep going. You know, most entrepreneurs have had, you know, two or three failures before their success. And so I think, and those really aren't failures. They're just things that uh, they pursued and they, they didn't necessarily work out, but I think not, you know, not focusing, not looking too much in the rearview mirror and, and looking ahead. Uh, those would be some of my thoughts. I think that's great advice. And that brings us to our last question of the show. It's centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. Mm-hmm. And without telling you too much about why we chose that phrase for a show about entrepreneurs, founders, and people pushing themselves to be their best. What do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? You know, I think any time in my life where I've been in a role where I came in in the office in the morning and I felt a total sense of calm about my job or my role or my, what I was going to do that day. I usually warn people, maybe that's, maybe you've reached a point where you're not growing and learning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you might reach a point of comfort, but you might've reached a point where you're not growing and learning. And, and I think expanding your horizons and learning and, and growing always requires some element of risk, some element of discomfort, some element of of stress, but is probably the path that is going to bring you the most growth. And so I would say if you're 
too cozy and comfortable with what you're doing right now, just ask yourself if you're if you're growing. Makes a lot of sense. Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been great talking to you. Really appreciate you taking the time to share your story and talk about everything you're doing. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah. And everybody out there listening, thanks so much for tuning in again. We really appreciate all your support. If you want to support us even more, well, hit that subscribe button. It really does help us out or leave a review if you haven't already. But again, really appreciate you tuning in. We'll talk to you next week.